from WBEZ Chicago. In the corner of your eye. This is Pleasure Town. Around the turn of last century, a group of folk built their dream. A town where happiness was the main objective. But, as history has shown, all great epics are built on failure. So, pour yourself a drink and join us as we try to keep hold of Pleasure Town. Would you do it again? Do what, Sai? Claim the land. Pitch the tent. Start our town. What else would I have done? Spend my best years drifting and swindling just for the fun of it? Pleasure Town gave me some roots. Your life is not why I'm asking. At the end, I'm not sure we were anything more than a slaughterhouse. But were we not shepherds, too? People eat sheep, Claude. We had good intentions. And we built a road straight to hell. Putting your life into something, only to have it turn and bite you, can make a person act outside their character. You whining about how everyone ignored you? No, Claude, I am not. I speak, rather, of Pleasure Town star-crossed lovers. Though, now you mention it, I can fully sympathize with their plight. She didn't ask me how my day was or even acknowledge my arrival when the door slammed shut behind me. But I suppose she never did. Unremarkable on any other day. Just her way. A broken shuffling patter emanated from the living room. This meant she would be in her chair. Her do-not-disturb chair. One leg will be up on the ottoman while the other fidgets. Expensive scotch would rest perilously on whichever arm she isn't leaning against. Her eyes, tired and dry, blinking too much, won't leave her book as she ticks and ticks, tapping the book binding, clicking a sole against the hard wood, shifting her weight to the other side, tapping the snifter while sipping, placing it on the opposite arm, flicking her own forehead with the newly freed arm before she switches back to the other side and again, ticking, ticking. Apparently it hadn't been a good day for either of us. She always told me to ignore her when she's like this, to let her deal with it alone, and in time we'd occupy the same space again. She insisted that I shouldn't, but typically on a day like this, when she's in her do-not-disturb chair, I'd walk in, recognize the situation, and start dinner. I'd bring her a plate, rest it on her side table, and she'd maybe eat it, or maybe not. I would top off her scotch when I saw an opportunity. All of this care taken silently, I would not say a word about the chair or her ticking. I dare not fill the air between us with idle chatter that would go without a response. I wouldn't say anything until she did. Any other day, finding her in this state, that's exactly what I'd do. Because of course I would. I love her. Even today. I entered without taking off my shoes. Another unspoken house rule. Her eyes flicked down at the floor, then up at my face. Not making eye contact, her jaw tense, and finally back to her book. 
I thought about sitting to take the edge off, but decided not to. No. This is a standing conversation. I know, I told her. She blinked, or maybe winced. Hard to tell in the lamplight. She licked her lips before setting down her book. What you know, hon? I know you've been seeing someone. She sucked in both lips and pursed, contorting them into a strained, mirthless, lipless grin. I see, she said, and leaned forward. Well, I guess that's it, then. That's what? I mean, am I wrong? Are you not ending things? Right here, right now? Because your posture, tone, and lack of subtlety certainly say so. Lack of subtlety? At least I came out and said something. I didn't sneak around behind your back and do... do this. Do sex. As if it's not bad enough that I have to hide my love for all these years. Now, to repay me, I'm your cuckold. Repay you? She stood up, proving me right. It's a standing conversation. You want to talk about concealment? About hiding the truth for the sake of another? She stamped off to the bedroom. I didn't follow, but I could hear her in the closet, pulling down a suitcase. Cuckold! Ha! It fell to the floor, among a rustle of fallen hangers. Wear a dress for a day. See how you like it. How did we get here? Well, I guess it's not as if it was love at first sight. I still remember the first time I met her, the good doctor. I'm not an on-the-record kind of guy, Rudd told me, dismissively. He seemed to be the ringleader of the boozers. I'd been in the saloon for hours trying to talk to anyone who would go on the record about Pleasure Town, to no avail. People would tell me again and again that Pleasure Town is a private place for private people, and that I should really learn to relax a bit. Shut up and have a drink, they'd tell me. But I didn't give up. I'd look at my nearly blank notes and keep asking my questions. Here's a story for the record. Rudd leaned in close. In fact, this is for everybody. He gestured around the saloon. Have I ever told you fellas about the live alligator my daddy kept in the cellar? See, daddy would only feed him pigeon eggs. But occasionally, when he got that gator hungry enough, because ain't no gator gonna get his fill from pigeon eggs. He looked hard at me, the only person in the room who wasn't part of his entourage. He'd feed that gator his favorite food. People who ask too many questions. Think I saw that gator around here the other day? And he looked mighty hungry. Let me get you another drink. He slapped my back and called over the bartender. I knew my night was leading nowhere but to the inevitable hangover until Rudd noticed a short man walking past the saloon. Doc! Hey, Doc! Come in here for a second. The doctor looked like he wanted to run. Finally decided to enter the saloon at the drunkard's request. No reason to show disrespect. Rudd leaned into me. Now, see here, Mr. Reporter Man. This here's a man you gotta know. This here's the doctor, and he knows everything. Trust me. Ask him all the questions you can think of. Even money says the doctor has an answer. And with that, he excused himself to go spread his flim-flam elsewhere. The doctor held an air of authority about him despite his smaller stature, or the poorly tailored but otherwise pristine suit hanging loose from his shoulders. He shook my hand exactly once, 
not wasting time or movement on unnecessary cordiality, and then asserted instead of asked, You aren't from around here. I laughed off his lack of tact. I guess you do know your stuff. I'm just here to learn more about the town. As a man who knows things, care to give me an interview? Somebody trusted, maybe a doctor like yourself, might know the whole town's deepest and darkest secrets. The doctor paused before responding, reaching instead for a scotch I hadn't seen anyone order for him. He blinked hard with his first swallow, perhaps wincing. Well, my boy, let me tell you about digging for facts. As a doctor, I want hard, fast evidence to determine the cause of an illness. But usually, I only have the patient's self-reported well-being. The doctor spent more time considering what to say than he did talking. A rare quality that stood in stark contrast to the other blowhards at the bar. He would sip and consider before continuing. In my experience, there's no more unreliable a source than a patient convinced of his own immortality. The only way to know for sure, to find that evidence you covet so hard, is often invasive surgery. But one can only dig so far before hitting bone. So remember this in your quest for the truth. First, do no harm. The doctor set his empty glass on the bar and left with only a nod. I didn't see the doctor for weeks after that, or what seemed like weeks. The feature series I was working on, the reason I was there in the first place, had a working title like The Little Village That Dared to Dream Big, or some other such fluffy nonsense I vomited on the page and began filling with nothing words like ebullient and effervescent and can-do spirit. Every time I'd sit to write this tripe, I'd think of the doctor. Something told me the doctor was the key. I'd seen that look before, heard that guarded tone. The doctor knew something. Something nobody else knew. Something he had carefully hidden away, but that he desperately wanted to share with the world. I was sure of it, I think. I'd fixate on this idea while lying on the bed in my dark, sweaty room until I began to feel sick, which is when I finally figured out how to see the doctor again. How are you feeling? The doctor would ask. He'd say a few words except for simple questions about diet. While he probed me, I probed him. I'd answer the best I could about my pretend malady and follow with questions about his past. He'd completely ignore me as he went mechanically about his business, and then offer that I need to eat more fruits and vegetables, keep track of my bowel movements, and get regular rest. I'd be back again a few days later, and again a few days after that. He was always stoic, professional, never a hint of anything more. Until finally, nearly a month after my first visit, he cracked. If you wish to speak to me about matters that have nothing to do with your health and well-being, we should meet elsewhere. You can pay me a social visit at my house, if you so wish. Oh, bring scotch. I'd watch her in the morning. She was always up for work well before I needed to be. She was good at being quiet, but now and then I'd stir. Staying as still as possible, I'd watch her. Before dressing, she'd stop in the mirror and scour her body with the eyes of a doctor, looking for flaws that could indicate illness, occasionally touching spots, measuring moles, checking for lumps. And then, briefly, she'd admire herself. Once or twice, I saw her press her breasts together, forward and up with her forearms, then drop a hip to accentuate curves that are so often iron flat 
I swear it happened. I could have dreamed it, but I don't think so. My doctor for an instant. Such a girl. And then gone. She would straighten her back and flatten her expression before wrapping herself with a cotton bind that pressed her breasts flat. Then the white button-up shirt, the black slacks, black tie, black wire-rimmed glasses, black overcoat. And then, there he is. Everyone's doctor. You live here. Where could you possibly be going? To stay with your lover? Is that it? Where else? I saw her recoil from my tantrum. I was losing her. Why don't you unpack and let's just talk? We can talk all night. Talk until words lose all meaning and our throats hurt and I need to make an appointment to see you so we can talk some more about my laryngitis. (laughs) She didn't laugh at my joke. She never did. My back was pressed against the door, barring her way. She set her briefcase on her suitcase and sat on them, head in her hands. Just let me leave. I just need to know why. After all these years, why? Don't you owe me that? An explanation? Have I not been good to you? I don't owe you anything. I gave you what I had, and you gave me what you had, and we had enough until we didn't. That's not an explanation. That's... that's... It's just not what you want to hear. But you don't know what an explanation would even sound like. You don't know what it is to live every day of your life pursuing your career out there with everyone else, with the entire world, as someone else entirely. Another gender, sure, whatever. Another person. Out there, I'm the doctor. I'm the one they come to when they're sick, when their children are sick, when they are wounded from a fall or discover a lump or feel an itch they can't scratch. They come to me, and they trust everything that I say. I am not just a man. I am their man. And here with you, I'm just your little woman, like all the other little women out there. Something to care for and protect. What do you need that I haven't given you? What more can I do for you? She stood back up. Maybe what I needed couldn't be given to me. Maybe I had to go and take it, whatever it is I need. And I did. I took it. I took it and it was good and I want more. Is that what you want to hear? I got what I needed and it was not given to me. Not by anyone, but more specifically, not by you. Not delivered to me unbidden with perfect, delicate care, as if I couldn't provide it for myself. Is that what you want? Is that what you need to know on the record? Because that's the truth. I'm not the woman you want me to be. I'm the doctor. Now step aside. As she spoke, my ears started burning with anger. I saw the story I came for unfolding before me. I saw the perfect ending. I saw the woman I made a life with. I saw myself unmaking her life. Sure thing. I moved away from the door, realizing I no longer needed to keep her there. I can quote you, right? You said so. It makes a hell of a story, you know. Lies. Fraud. A spinster run amok in a small town America. It has intrigue. Betrayal. Loads of betrayal. She stopped in the open doorway, considering my words. Pleasure Town will return in a moment.
You know, Sai, the first time I ever shot a man scared the spirit right out of me. Seeing him stumble backward, clutching the wound, the blood trickling down, soaking his vest. And that look, pain, such a ghastly thing. Violence certainly doesn't just maim the victim. Ain't that the truth? And boy, did Pleasure Town have its share of scarred souls. Injurious. You know this word? I have been injurious. I have caused harm. I'm not talking here about harm to a man's reputation or his property, though I've done those injuries too. I'm talking about great and lasting harm. I have put bullets and blades into the bodies of people and have caused their death. I have hacked and carved and shot people, mostly men. By my reckoning, I have cut down 38 people. Another 12 or 15 likely died of injuries I inflicted on them, but 38 I saw die. 31 men, 6 women, and a boy. There were rules. I had limits. Like there was this rancher, crazy as he could be, wants me to shoot the school teacher he's in love with because she don't love him back. Wants me to shoot her in the schoolhouse with the children there and then burn down the school. This I would not do. Moved along from that town, so cannot say for sure if he hired that done by somebody else. That rancher was a rich, rich man, and his was a large and furious madness. For me, though, it was never personal. I had a job of work to do, which was to commit butchery. This I did, and did it well. In most cases, I killed good men who'd run afoul of the kind of man that good men should have no truck with, cutthroats who lend money, madmen with loose wives, prairie town despots tightening the coils of their power. The plain fact is, of the 31 men I've killed, maybe only eight or nine deserved what they got. In a just world, the others would have lived to be old men, men unpierced by bullets or beaten with axe handles, men unseparated from their limbs and lives. But in the mortal trade I plied, justice had no place. Mine was the commerce of bodies landing in the dust in exchange for a burden of coins in my saddlebag. The men who hired me bought the deed itself, of course, the death-dealing but they also bought my silence and my departure from wherever I spilled blood. So most of my life has been one long leave-taking. The advantage of constant departure is you're free of attachment. I've been spared the complexity of entanglement most of you know. I would show up in a town, learn a man's habits well enough to put a slug in him, collect my fee, and move on. But they bought me other things as well. They bought me adversaries. They bought me a life of vigilance and worry. The life of every man, 
Every man with attachments and obligations is like a boat cutting through a lake. That boat drags behind it a net, and that net ensnares all manner of affection and involvement in its wake. So when that boat sinks by violent means, it leaves avenging flotsam adrift in that lake. Sons are the worst, the most tenacious. The boy I killed was one such son. I'd cut his old man about in half with both barrels of a shotgun, and this stringy little beanpole of a boy comes tearing around the barn and buries a sickle blade in the meat of my leg before I crushed his skull with the butt of my gun. Kid held on to my ankle after he was dead, even. Had to break his skinny fingers to get them off from around my boot. I'm here to tell you there is a particular green twig snapping sound made by the breaking fingers of a boy maybe twelve years old, and there ain't a wind in the world that can carry that sound away. Even though I was never any one place long, I settled into a state of waiting in the growing certainty that one of those sons, one of those fathers or uncles or neighbors would track me down and visit vengeance upon me. This permanent state of waiting for a bullet creates a divided kind of attention few of you can appreciate. Whatever task I have at hand, whatever meal I am taking, whatever sleep I can manage, all these get half done. Most of my mind is occupied by stray sounds and flickering movement that escape your notice. The creak of every floorboard, the nerves of every horse. These weigh on my mind. I think, most often, of the Swede outside of Tulsa. Tall and lean and stern he was. Only time I ever shot a man, and he made no sound. He ran a dry goods store. I put a slug in his gut, and he just shook his head a little and looked at me with reproach. I put a hole right in the middle of the apron he had on. He just looked at me, shook his head a little, slid to the floor. He had these blue, blue eyes. Blue as a cornflower, they were. I can see those eyes of his whenever my mind is idle. This is the main trouble with being an injurious man. These people, the ones I've done harm to and taken life from, they abide in me still. When you encounter a fella at a livery stable or a hotel or a dry goods store, you conclude your business with that fella and then never think of him again, probably. When I conclude my business, that fella lies dead at my feet. And so then I must heft that fella and carry him along with me for good till I breathe my last, probably. This is why when a man comes into my saloon, I do not speak to him. Because inside me, I am full. There is no room to spare for your talk of weather or crops, your plans and sorrows. I have used up a lifetime's worth of my attention 
waiting for a bullet. So I have nothing left for you. You go off and commiserate with somebody else. There's a ravine between us, you and me, and no amount of your talk will fashion a bridge either of us can cross. So, still your tongue. I want to hear it when justice comes for me. Whether it's the hand of providence or the man who's come to avenge somebody whose life I took. If there's a man comes gunning for me, I want to know about it. And it could come at any time, so I have no interest in the wagging of your tongue. I wish to be clear-eyed and still when things are set right. I wish, most of all, to lay down this burden of vigilance. I, too, long for that relief. I'd do anything to stop us from planting our stake. Come on, Cy. Your life before Pleasure Town was barely living. Sure, but can you count my life as gain when so many had to suffer for it? Those Buddhists say all life is suffering. At least we provided a party. Speaking of, isn't it about time you cut the pity party? <laughs> Can't end the party till everyone drinks the punch. Was that a Jonestown reference? Well, had to come sometime. This is Keith. As always, thank you so very much for listening. Uh, we cannot ever express how much your listenership means to us, but it is grand. And if you liked what you heard today, uh, we would love if you would visit us on iTunes and give us a rating and a review. That's and, not or. You can't pick or choose. Actually, you can, whatever you want to do. And we're all over the internets. We have a website, PleasureTownShow.com. We're on the Twitter, PleasureTownOK. And we're on Facebook as well. That one really doesn't have a blink, but if you search for us, you'll find us. And also, you know, we are hearing about this unfolding saga between the reporter and the doctor. And if you want a little bit more about that, we're going to be posting a week after this episode drops a very special love letter that you can read on our website, PleasureTownShow.com. That's right. That'll be on October 22nd. So if it's past October 22nd, go ahead and go to the website, find it there. If it's before October 22nd, then, you know, find a way to pass the time. Also, uh, there's one other thing you can do on our website. Actually, there's a lot more than one other thing. But one other thing you can do on our website is visit the Join the Story page and make a creative contribution to Pleasure Town. We're currently still seeking last names for the town founders, Claude and Cyrus. Uh, and we're also doing our story contest where you can write an episode of Pleasure Town. It doesn't have to be a full-length 20-minute episode. could be just a short, you know, three, four, five minutes even. But the details are on our website at Join the Story. Click on the Join the Story tab, and you can learn more. Thank you. I love you. Bye. Pleasure Town is written and produced by Keith Ecker and Aaron Cahoe. This episode featured stories by Ryan Duke and Ian Belknap. 
and was performed by Dana Norris, Kevin Gladish, and Ian Belknap. Direction and sound design by Joe Dassault with production assistance by Patrick Burns. Our interns are me, Emily Modaf, and Allison Agumakun. Original music was composed and performed by River Rising's Megan Diger and Tim Hazen and engineered by Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Pleasure Town is a part of the WBEZ Podcast Network. Discover more excellent shows like Chewing the Fat at WBEZ.org slash podcasts. Pleasure Town is an ever-growing interactive narrative which relies on your creativity, your imagination, and especially your voice to expand the legend. Find out how you can join the story at WBEZ.org slash Pleasure Town. Oh,